Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with the pioneering and award-winning journalist Maria Hinojosa, author of Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America, published by Atria Books in 2020. Maria Hinojosa's nearly 30-year career as a journalist includes reporting for PBS, CBS, WGBH, WNBC, CNN, and NPR, and anchoring and executive producing the Peabody award-winning show Latino USA, distributed by NPR. She is a frequent guest on MSNBC and has won dozens of awards, including four Emmys, the John Chancellor Award, the Studs Terkel Community Award, the Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence in Journalism, two Robert F. Kennedy Awards, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Ruben Salazar Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2010, she founded Futuro Media, uh, in a, an independent nonprofit organization with the mission of producing multimedia content from a person of color perspective. She is also the founding co-anchor of the political podcast In the Thick. Maria lives with her family in Harlem in New York City. Hello, Maria, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Uh, thank you again for taking time. I can only imagine how, how busy you probably are with uh, promoting this book and, and obviously just with all the other things you're involved in. So thank you again for your oh, time. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is what it's all about. It's about connecting with our community. So I'm thankful. Exactly. Exactly. Well, wonderful. How about if, if we can start by you just sharing with us the process that that you came through to, to decide to write this memoir at this time, uh, not only in your life, but also a, a critical junction in our, our nation and global history. Well, to be honest with you, I really wasn't planning on writing this book. And I know it's coming out right in the fall of 2020, but it was two years ago that I was, you know, trying to imagine writing this book. Um, and then it, it took uh, an intensive period, but I, I really thought, oh, by the time my book comes out, nobody's going to be interested anymore. You know, it's going to be like every book about an immigrant story from this perspective has already been, you know, done. And so it's very, it's fascinating when you find people connecting with your work. One of my, um, one of the things I wanted to make sure with Once I Was You is that it was, it was understood to be a very broad American woman's story. Yes, I'm an immigrant, but I'm I'm a woman who's growing up in the United States of America, and um, I wanted to share my understanding of history over the last fifty years, um, and also then going back and understanding U.S. immigration policy. So um, you know, it wasn't that I was like, oh my God, let me write this book and it's going to be great for 2020. It was like, oh my God, I think I have to write a book. I think the first book I want to write 
is a little book called Illegal is Not a Noun, which was a viral moment I had from MSNBC. And then in the process of writing the book, speaking to publishers, editors, etc., it turns out to be this, Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America that, yes, it's my story, but there's also a lot of spinach, if you will. But it's like the best kind of spinach. It's like really tasty. So you're learning a lot um, while you're also understanding my own history as, as one of the first in all in the new newsrooms where I worked. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And um, it seems striking to me, of you, it, both in the, I think in the beginning I mean, or the end of the book and right now you're mentioning, you know, that this is, this is a history of sorts, right? It's, it's not just your own, uh, you know, memoir, but even as I was reading it, and frankly, as a, as a historian, the one that does this for work and teaches classes on this, I was just struck by how well you interwove so much of the history that's occurred, you know, since essentially the 60s and so much dramatic change um, that, I mean, just only perhaps a decade or so ago, it's like, wow, I wonder what it was like to live in the 60s. And, and now I'm like, oh my gosh, I know what it's like, right? Uh, or 60s and 70s, just because of the, the similarities, you know, in um, the issues that our world is dealing with and, um, you know, the transformations in economy, politics, uh, as you've mentioned, and we'll get into a lot of it. So uh, thank you for that. And I was wondering if you just specifically, could you address um, the process of coming to the title itself? I mean, once I I was you, I mean, that is um, both very personal and I think it it attempts to connect with your readers uh, directly. And, you know, so there's a very specific part of that, but then you also say it's it's kind of very broad uh, in in the reach of what this book and who it can connect with. So um, I don't know how it goes for other authors, but I didn't have a title. In fact, I had written the whole book already um, when my editor, Michelle Herrera Mulligan, uh, Mexican-Irish from Chicago, um, when she said to me, great, now write the introduction. And I was like, I was like, no, are you kidding me? I already wrote the book. Um, And I was really inspired by my muse, Sandra Cisneros, um, who told me not only to write, like if you're writing in your kitchen in your pajamas, but then also told me closer to the time when I was writing this book to not just think about writing about what I could remember, but writing about the things I wish I could forget. And um, there was this moment that occurred in the McAllen airport on the border one morning when I was catching a flight from McAllen to Houston and then to New York. And uh, I see a little girl. And what catches me is that she's not looking at me, but looking through me. Uh, And it turns out when I kind of survey the situation, she's one of the children who's been ripped from her family member's arms and is now being trafficked, actually. The definition of being trafficked is you don't have access to your identification. You don't know where you're going. You don't know who's taking you. And you've been told not to speak to anybody. Um, So I write the story of kind of encountering and this group of kids and their so-called chaperones and trying to get them to allow me to speak to them. And, um, and as I'm saying, in, and as I'm finishing this moment in, in the introduction, I just say, you know, I wanted these children to hear me. That's why I was speaking loudly in Spanish to the people who were transporting them. I said, you know, I want them to hear me. I want them to know that I see them. I see them. I see you, little girl, because once I was you. And what is revealed in this book, which wasn't crystal clear to me when I set out to write the book, was that kind of an enigma. I never realized how close I I came to myself being taken from my mother's arms when I arrived to this country, even though I arrived with privilege, with my family, with a green card, into an airport, well-dressed, clean, and they still found a potential reason to take me from my mother. And that is a story that gets told in Once I Was You that really was uh, 
not not the way I expected. I, I did not know that story and in all of its complexity when I started out writing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I, I, thank you for bringing up the, the part about in the McKellen Airport. And I want to go back to the second. Uh, just wondering, when did you... When did your parents tell you about that story? You know about your own experience, um, you know, coming through the airport and having that. You know, the, um, it wasn't it wasn't border patrol. I forget what agency he was, um, but uh, but essentially try to separate you from your from your mother. When, right. when did you learn about that story? Well, it comes in two parts because I learned about that story when I wrote my first um, memoir. It's a motherhood memoir, raising Raúl, adventures raising myself and my son. Um, and so I was actually a mother now when I found that out uh, that story, and I needed to know that story because I was writing about my arrival. And, and this, the way the story went was that <clears throat> something had happened at the airport when we arrived to meet my father in Chicago, who was at the University of Chicago, where he was a medical doctor dedicated to research, and we were arriving six months later. Um, and what I understood was that something had happened at the airport with the agent, and that my mother had stood up to the agent. And so the way I understood that story was that it was a story of my mom standing up and using her voice. And and so I always told that story. I mean, I, I told this story of my arrival in almost every speech that I gave for the last, you know, what, almost 20 years. Um, and it was a big kind of like, oh, my God, Maria Hinojosa's mom stood up to an immigration agent. Wow. That's why she has such a big mouth. That's why tiny but mighty. <laughs> you know, my mother understood what it was to be an American even before she got here. She had that green card. She had rights. All true. Right. All of that true. Except that <clears throat> at the height of when babies were being ripped from their family's arms, um, and we heard the audio of those children screaming and crying for their parents. Um, I mean, we were all impacted by it. I mean, this was, I mean, everybody was thinking about this. Everybody was feeling it. It, it was a nightmare come true. Um, and my mother called me and she was in tears. And I said, Ma, ¿qué pasa? And she said, oh, I'm realizing that I'm, I'm sad because I'm realizing I could have been one of those mothers. Oh my gosh. And I was like, mommy, ma. I was like, ma, por favor, ma, de que hablas, ma. And then she said, it could have been you, mijita. You could have been one of those babies that was taken. And then as we say in Mexican Spanish, se me cayó el veinte. You know, the, 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 the quarter dropped into the phone booth and it was like, clink. Oh my God. And, and then the way I understood that was even then I was like, wow, it's true. They almost, this guy tried to take me. But I was like, oh, but you know, he was just a fluke. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, who was this guy? He was crazy. He, you know, he went, what, what, I mean, it was just a one-time thing. And it was really in the writing of the book where it was like, no, actually, it was a policy yeah. on the books in Texas up through 1964 that said that immigration agents had to, by law, look and make sure that Mexicans were clean enough to come into the United States. I'm gonna use a slur now. Um, It's a slur that is two words that are always used when applying to Mexicans. And it was this notion that um, I was a dirty Mexican. That's what I was reduced to. Um, And the policy by law was if there was a dirty Mexican, you had to take that person and get them gassed, cleaned, quarantined. And he wanted to quarantine me because I had a small rash on my arm. Kind of unpeeling that and just realizing everything that I was tied to in terms of these horrible policies in this country was not clear to me when I set out, when I set out to write this book. And um, that revelation has changed everything for me in my entire life. Absolutely everything. So I mean, that process of, you know, drawing that very personal connection to, you know, the girl in the, in the McAllen airport, that experience you've had, is, is that what led to, you know, the subtitle of the book, right? That, you know, there's a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. I mean, is that speaking also to the type of relationship you you feel 
with um, this country. With this country, yes. <laughs> well, I don't. I didn't like the fact that there was hate in the title. I I was like, mm, I don't I don't like that. It's a downer. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I want to be clear: there is hate. You know, I had to write an epilogue to the book after the El Paso massacre. I mean, that was an act of hate. That was an act of terrorism directed against me. People just like me, people who were not born in this country, but born in Mexico, or who had green cards, or who, or Latinos who were born and raised in El Paso. Um, so that is hatred. And I think in part what we have to do is we have to understand that there has been hatred, there has been a history of hatred against all immigrants, um, against the other, and that you know this anti-Latino, anti-Mexican, anti-immigrant hatred is uh, sitting on the shoulders of anti-Black hatred, which sits on the shoulders of anti-Indigenous hatred. You know, the original sin was uh, slavery, but the first sin was genocide. So all of those things are connected. And, you know, you can only hate something that you really love. <laughs> like, you, you know that when you hate, oh, you know, oh, then it's like, oh, so, because it means you have value. So I was trying to, and still am trying to come to terms with my country, this country, my adopted country, because, um, you know, it's, it advertises as one thing and, and then it gives, it delivers another in terms of policies on immigration. So is that false advertising? I mean, you know, <laughs> I needed to set that record straight in my own mind. Yeah, and you're directly speaking to, you know, our our nation's, you know, one of its foundational. Uh, well, it, I would I, I'd actually push back to say that you know a nation of immigrants is not one of our foundational myths. It's 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 become one, right? Certainly, and you're but you're speaking there to that, the kind of schizophrenia that our country has, right? With its wanting to embrace narratives of, of welcoming immigrants in the past, right, and yet in not only the present, but literally in every moment of our nation's history, finding ways to exclude and dehumanize people. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm about seven miles from the Statue of Liberty right now here in Harlem, USA, maybe a little bit less. Um, so that's saying one thing, but you're right. Then that's what I needed to do. I needed to go back and say like, whoa, it, it didn't start with Latinos. <laughs> Um, you know, the first people who were excluded by law, excluded, not deported, um, but excluded by law were Asian women, Chinese women. And in this, in the writing of this book, I, I love the fact that I found um, a tie, a historical tie to Chinese women who were, like my mother, coming to be reunited with her loved one, her, her husband, her partner. Um, but Asian women were excluded and told that they could not come because they were sex workers, i.e. dirty. Um, not true. That's what the white men who wrote the history books and those policies, by the way, white men based all the way in Washington, D.C., were um, fixated on keeping Chinese women not flying in or, you know, coming into California, not flying, but, you know, arriving by boat to California. What? Um, Asian women were excluded, and then came the official Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, so it, from there, it's a policy of othering and othering and othering, and on the one hand saying, oh, no, but we are a nation of... No, no, actually, right now, there is zero immigration that's coming into the United States, like legal, um, 15,000... Uh, max refugees right now is the, the number that is allowed, when at one point the highest may have been, I don't know, anywhere about 200,000, a little bit over, which is still tiny and minuscule, given the United States of America and its uh, narrative of being the home to immigrants and refugees. 200,000 worldwide is nothing. And that was at its, <clears throat> that was at its height. We should be ashamed of ourselves. I mean, I am certainly but it's not about my shame 
for my adopted country. It's about the fact that everybody who's listening to this has to do something to make this change. Not me, everybody. Thank you. Yes, I mean, totally agree. Um, you got me thinking about that uh, that moment, and I wanted to bring it up again. Uh, it where you begin the book, a letter to the girl at the McAllen Airport. Um, you know that encounter that you describe, and that attempt for you, you know, that attempt by you to to show those children that somebody saw them, somebody was willing to hear them, that there were people here in the United States that that um, want them to know that they're cared for, that their people are concerned about them. Um, you know, it just it opening the book with that it caused me so much pause. It's one of those issues, right, where realizing that um, what our immigration system has become. I mean, it's always separated people. It's it's always excluded people. It's always separated families. But the point at which we are now, right, over 200 some odd years into our nation's history uh, and this long, you know, development of, of dealing with uh, and, and figuring out how to how to treat people from other countries that we're at this moment where we are literally locking people up in cages right? and children, as you emphasize over and over again in the book and where you have this scene where there's, um, I forget exactly how many children you describe in the middle. I mean, in the beginning of the book, how many children were there, but this group of very young children that are clearly in this airport with, with these people, you know, in uniforms, officers that have no relation to them. Um, it, it's just a moment where, it's almost like time freezes when you realize that's what's going on right now. Um, yeah, it is going on right now. It is the, the horror, that horror. Um, you know, that was United airlines. <clears throat> the flight attendants knew what was happening. I, I was prohibited from speaking to these children. I mean, what were they going to do to me? I, I don't know, right? But, but people operating as if this is normal. And by the way, this by the time I had seen this, I had uh, this particular scene in the McAllen Airport. I had already, because I used to live in airports before the pandemic. I was in airports every week, and I had already seen people being, uh, ch children being transported. And I was like, what's going on here? I didn't know. I was like, is it a church group? Is it a soccer team? Why are they wearing these, you know, badly made sweatsuits? It, you know, why don't they look happy? What's going on here? And so um, people who are listening to this, if they think back, they might, they might have seen it themselves. And so it's the horror of this hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Hiding in plain sight. Like, oh, well, why are we going to transport these children in, you know, um, you know, undercover looking buses and, you know, put them, you know, and take them here? No, let's just put them on planes. Nobody's going to ask. It's just a group of brown kids who cares about them. So the horror that this is happening in, in plain sight. Um, and it's happening all around us, by the way. Um, I'm in Harlem, New York City, 10 blocks from where I am. There is a place um, on 125th Street where the children who have been separated, that's where they go during the day. They sleep in foster care at night. And during the day, these children are put into these, I mean, it's a converted bank. Um, these children are not seen as as regular kids, they're seen as something else that needs to be put into a cage or, you know, locked up in these kind of places during the day. I mean, come on. The essence of why that happens is because of the level of dehumanization. And again, we have to deconstruct this dehumanization. And the only way that that's going to happen is by everybody taking part in deconstructing it. Not, not by me, but everybody. Right. And I think, and, um, you know, and taking responsibility for it, right? I mean, taking responsibility that this is, this is our country and it's happening underneath our watch, right? Whether we've, we, we want to admit it or not, there's something we need to do about it. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, 
we've all we've all been alive while this has been happening. Um, you know, some of us. I've been, you know, the first time I visited an immigrant detention facility is in the year 1986. Um, back then it was called El Corralón, the corral, because they would literally corral Central American refugees in the hot sun with a, you know, a chain link fence around them. So there they were like, you know, go stand in the hot sun. Good luck if you get out, you know, some water. Now, the first place immigrants and refugees arrive when they are taken in by this country is they are put into a place called La Yelera, the icebox, the opposite of a corral in the hot sun. It's another form of torture that, torture that leaves no marks. They're, they're freezing people. Oh, they say it's for health reasons, but really? Isn't it really just a, a welcome to the United States? We're going to freeze you until you can't take it anymore. And there's not going to be any mark that shows that you were tortured, but you will never forget that moment. That's happening every day in our country. That realization and the weight of it, as I said, it's when you let it sink in, to me, at least, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like it freezes time for a moment. It's, um, you know, just a week or two ago, my wife shared with me a, a YouTube video. There's an artist and her name's Nancy, um, Nancy Sanchez. I think she's from East LA. And she uh, wrote and performed the song, The Children Are Still in Cages. And uh, I played it for one of my classes after listening to it over and over again. And just that just same feeling of, um, I know this is happening. Um, I've been studying it. I've been teaching it for, for years now. Um, I almost just can't believe it, you know, but I, I know it's happening. And the fact that it's happening, as you're saying, in, in plain sight, um, is just what's so staggering. And it's what's so shocking. But, uh, you know, th that, that shock cannot, we cannot be frozen by it, right? Well, the problem is, is that there are many of us, I mean, so many activists, lawyers for human rights, who were pointing out and saying, this is happening. Um, you know, <clears throat> I remember being part of a conversation that I guess was considered somewhat radical, which was like, you know, the activists, worldwide activists who were saying, really, we're at a point where do we try to make these detention facilities better? Or really is the more humane thing to just argue to shut them down, period. Um, and I would say that right now, you know, with this politics of this moment, we don't know what's going to happen. But if Joe Biden were to win and Kamala Harris, I mean, they have all of the, uh, all of the armament that they need to say these places need to be shut down immediately. They are forcibly sterilizing women whose only crime ultimately is that we were not born in the United States. That's it. That's ultimately the thing that allows them to be treated um, in this way. Um, so this is a moment when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris could say, okay, that's it. That, that's it. It's done. Over. We're shutting them down. All of them. And then I would say, their next responsibility needs to be to say that they will begin an immediate process of reunification, of bringing families into the United States, processing those who are here for their legalization of status, um, if they want to move on to citizenship, and for those who were separated and taken and you know tossed around like like animals, um, they get unlimited health care provided by the United States government. That, that's what you do to begin to, to heal. I agree. And um, I, can, I can hope, and I, I hope indeed, right, that that's what we can push to come to pass. Because again, that's, that's a responsibility that, that we have in this election and, and after this election. I wanted to... Um, I want to talk a bit about your your some of your experiences growing up, or ask you um, about some of them, um, and maybe I can frame it this way because there's there's just so many wonderful experiences that you bring up. A key theme of this book, it seems to me, is the process by which you you learn to 
understand and develop your voice, right? Who you are as, you know, individually as a person, but, but particularly as a journalist, right? As, you know, one of the very few um, Latinas and women of color, just flat out people of color, right? In um, journalism, in you know, both television, radio, as, uh, you know, you're going through this process. And so I was wondering if you could help our audience understand what, what was that like and, and how did you, how did you learn to, you know, first see like what, what was your voice? What is your voice? What, what is the contribution that you were going to make or that you could make? And, and um, you know, how did you figure out how to you know, believe in yourself um, after realizing what your voice was and, and that you needed to be heard? And... I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, I think central to that, honestly, was understanding my privilege. Um, we did not have <laughs> this notion of like lots of money. Nope. No. My dad was a research doctor. So, but no nos faltaba nada, as we say in Mexican Spanish. You know, we, we didn't need anything. I went to public school. Um, and then for high school, I went to private school. And then I was like, whoa, I understand privilege a little bit more here. I understand. Like, I began to understand class. Um, and this was a school, the University of Chicago High School, that fed to a lot of the Ivy League. So I was like, okay, Ivy League, what's this? Um, and I end up at, at Barnard, um, which is, you know, uh, the Women's College of Columbia University. And so I I really did have privilege. Um that is what leads me in those moments when, like, for example, I'm the first Latina at NPR um, and I'm terrified. <laughs> um, you know, what did it feel like? I say, well, it felt like I was really happy to have a job. Like, you know, people are like, but what was it really like to be the first? I was like, I was really happy to have a job. I was no longer going to have to be a waitress, you know. Um and then I knew that people were going to be looking at me. I mean, I was the first. And so I think I understood, well, look, there's not a lot of possibility that you're just going to kind of blend in. <laughs> so you might as well just be who you are, be your full authentic self. Still, you have fear. I would sit in those editorial meetings, you know, like no one of color, and I would grab my left arm and I would push up my right arm, you know, so that I would, you know, raise my hand. I would literally force my left hand to hold my right hand up, f force it up there. Because I was like, you, you have to do something. You have to say something. You can't be in this editorial meeting here at NPR and not say anything. No, you have privilege. Well, you better use it. That's when I was like, you're not here for you. You're here for everybody else. Uh, so just do this. And, and I'm so thankful that I was able to understand privilege in that way and understand my responsibility to use it in a way that was about giving it back to, to the community that, um, that I love, you know, that I'm a part of, but that sadly is somehow always invisible in the United States of America. Yeah. On that, that aspect of giving it back, it reminded me of this, uh, the scene you paint in the book where, you know, your family, as you, uh, as you settle into Chicago and you, you're living in your apartment, you're going to high school and all this stuff, your your family develops the practice of being good Americans by watching TV while you eat dinner uh, and uh, particularly watching the news. And that you remember the reporting on particularly the Vietnam 
refugee crisis, right, and developments after the fall of Saigon, and what it was like to see, you know, images and the power that those images carried of, of the Vietnamese uh, being showed as, shown as, you know, in some cases naked, distraught, war-torn, I mean, just tossed people, but yet being voiceless. Um, can you speak about the impact that that had on you? And, and perhaps at the moment you didn't decide, oh, I'm going to be a journalist and fix this, but but those type of experiences of, of seeing how uh, people from the global south, of, of people of color were represented through images and, and yet denied a voice, the type of impact that had on you. I have to say that this is um, a very special part of the book for me. Um, I don't have a lot of communication into the Vietnamese community in the United States, but I really hope that this book somehow um, begins to get into their hands. Um, because it did, it impacted me greatly. The first televised refugee crisis in the world is that of the Vietnamese refugees. Um, seasoned, educated journalists that were running places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, ABC News, CBS News, somehow accepted the label of human beings, of labeling them boat people. What, what kind of a horror is that? That would be as if the New York Times, it's bad enough that they still use the term illegal to refer to a human being, but it would be referring to the people, um, the refugees who are forced to sleep in Juarez um, outside before they can get into the United States. Um, it would be calling them concrete people, sidewalk people, so it, it did, me impresionó that, you know, I would see the news and it's like, but there is a war against Vietnam, but we never hear them. You know, we, we don't see, we don't even, I mean, if you think about the Iraq war, it's the same kind of imagery over and over again, but again, voiceless. And it's like, are you kidding me? We're doing this again? Um, so what, what ends up happening is, is that when I do become a journalist, I'm immediately drawn to telling the story of the Vietnamese Americans now, to giving them voice. And I really, that is something that I never could have imagined that would have been something that I, I could pay back, which is to say, at least in this one piece that I did um, for NPR with Scott Simon, I did allow the Vietnamese community of South Texas to have a voice um, and some level of complexity. Um, you know, one of my best friends is Vietnamese in New York. We work out together every morning and, and you know, I miss her. I haven't seen her since February. Um, and I've thought about, you know, why is it that you and Mimi, um, her name is Mimi, uh, well, that's her Americanized name, um, Q, um, you know, why is it that you've become so close with her? It's to me, it's part of a personal reparations almost to say, I see you, you are me, I am you. Um, and the Vietnamese community in the United States really deserves so much more recognition. Still, not just when they were labeled that horrible term and came here and whose stories we haven't heard, but we need to know more about this community. They are part and parcel of our history and the future of this country. You know, a, a, a theme of your work that stands out to me, uh, your career as a journalist, um, is that you're you're so dedicated to making the the invisible visible, right? For providing a voice for the voiceless, and and I wonder as you were sharing that, it made me think of another you know event that you describe in early in the book, where you're I don't know you could share with us how early how, how young you were, but you make the comment that kind of like as you're observing kind of like the racial dynamics, I think it was, of the United States, you made the comment that I I was the one who understood this place. That's the quote from your book, right? And you felt that you you had this plan to keep your family safe. I'm, my question is, I'm wondering if in this process, is that is that how you, you, you came to see yourself as a journalist? That as a journalist, you were able to see things and understand this country in ways that perhaps those of us that are not in the newsrooms and are not, you know, 
persistently watching and investigating and, and questioning those in power. Um, is there a connection between that, that you felt that this is a way that, that you understood something about this country and a way to maybe help inform us, take care of us, is, is to do the work that you do? I think so. I, I mean, I think I definitely knew, like when, 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 I don't remember when I first heard the term the other. I wish I could remember, but when I heard that, I was like, oh, <laughs> that's what I am. Um, you know, I'm a border crosser. I've been crossing borders since I was born, really. Um, whether the United States and Mexico or whether within communities, you know, High Park, which is the University of Chicago, on the south side to Pilsen, which is El Barrio Mexicano, um, you know, crossing that border. Um, I was the, I was the quote unquote minority, which is a term I do not use in my language, in my newsroom, but I was. And, and of course it, it, it feels like, I mean, it's not such a great feeling, but at some point you begin to understand like, oh, wait, this is like my superpower. I mean, what I'm trying to get is for younger people to own this kind of sense of like this weirdness is our superpower. Um, this ability to feel like you don't fit in one place or the other is our superpower. Um, and this notion of the other, what I think I understood in terms of a journalist was that because I was the other, I could also speak to anyone about anything. I think I got this in part because my mom in Mexico, we have a saying called uh, espata de perro, which means she's like a dog's foot, which means that she is out and about all the time. And my mother and grandmother were out and about all the time, all the time. And so they spoke to everyone about anything. And I feel like I kind of got that. Um, and then I took it to the next level, which was as a journalist, because I understand being the other, I can, I can speak to you as the other. I'm not afraid of being the other. I'm not afraid of you knowing that I know that you're the other. Um, and people who are on the outside want voice. I mean, <laughs> way back then in the 1990s, you know, white supremacists were the other. Um, and I remember interviewing them in the mid-1990s. Um, and it was just like, whoa, man, you spoke to like white supremacists, like, whoa, what a, like, what a, what a particular group that's really outside of the norm. Well, they're not anymore. Um, but I was speaking to them back then. Uh, and I think that that's part of what I understood I could do. That instead of this being something that made me feel different, weird, strange, and it made me feel all those things, that it could also be my superpower. I love that. That's a beautiful idea um, of being the other and embracing that, embracing that as your superpower. You know, it, it reminds me somewhat of uh, Brittany Cooper's concept of eloquent rage. And as I um, talk to a lot of students, we, as we, we, we teach, you know, as I teach Latino history, and particularly a lot of my focus is on civil rights and social justice. And oftentimes the first response that a lot of them feel is they learn a history that they feel has been denied to them, both not just the wrongs, but the empowering history of what people of color have done for themselves and how much they have pushed this country to be better. They Oftentimes the first reaction is anger. You know, it's kind of like I've been cheated out of something. Um, and I, I usually then bring in that concept from, from um, Brittany Cooper of, of how that can be embraced. Right, how that can actually be embraced as a power, and you use that, you know, you use that to develop. I mean, we, 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 we have to do that now. Mm -hmm. um, we have to do that now in this country. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, we're going to die of sadness and rage. Mm -hmm. right? um, I'm not sure if she's the one who says anger that rage is anger with the light on. Um, that that it's it's actually your. You know, you're 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 turning something on. You're understanding it. It's not just anger. There's a, there's a focus of rage, and a decision to use that rage to turn it into something positive. But there is rage, mm -hmm. no doubt. I want to stay on this a little bit more about 
you know, just the aspect of developing your superpower and, and believing in yourself. Cause, uh, I, it's a conversation I have so much with, um, you know, my own students, particularly first gen students of color, other underrepresented groups, um, that feel that they are othered, that feel they are alone, that, um, are trying to figure out what their voice is and, and whether, you know, it's worth saying something and, and how they do that. Um, it, it reminds me of this, uh, another moment in the book that you share where you are asked to write um, a, a script for Walter Cronkite. And this is on the Iran-Contra scandal, right? And as you you write that, right, you you kind of feel the, your, your voice and you really spend a lot of time doing this, right, to make sure you're being fair and, um, you know, like objective, that this isn't just, you know, a Latina, you know, uh, that's that's writing from this perspective, but you righteously you you felt this kind of anger and indignation at, at what the country was doing, right? Um, and so as a, as you explain it, right, you go and you pitch the script, and and um, it, it's first the the producer boss in front of in front of you, right? He he wants to turn it down, and and you insist, no, let's let's go and show this to someone else. Can you talk about that that experience and what that meant for you? Um, <laughs> I, I love talking about this because it. I remember getting the assignment of you're going to have to write the end of the year commentary for Walter Cronkite, and you know, just kind of freaking out. What What do you mean? And um, back then at CBS News, everywhere you went and every every floor, every office, there were these long legal yellow legal pads and. So I had taken one of those home and I sat there by hand and wrote it out by hand, this, this commentary. I mean, it was about, let's get it straight. It was about maybe, I don't know, 18 sentences, maybe 20, maybe less. So not a lot, uh, you know, but you had to pack it all in. You had to, res, you know, come up with the, the whole end of the year. And I was indignant because Oliver North had broken the law and everybody knew this and he was a decorated Marine and he was stealing and, you know, I mean, it was just horrible. I should have known that Walter Cronkite was going to be um, as angry and disappointed in this country as I was. In fact, he was. So I write this commentary by hand. I edit it. I talk to friends. I check it out. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it this? You know, so I really did my work as a journalist. I edited, I re-edited, I made sure that it didn't sound like it was me. It was a solid piece of writing. Um, and when I take it to my boss, he's like, yeah, yeah, Walter won't read this. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, yeah, it sounds definitely like you, like Maria. And I was like, well, I don't think so. I, I don't know what, I think it's because I had worked so hard on it. I had worked so hard to make sure that that accusation did not exist. It's almost like I knew he was going to tell me. Uh, and so I had worked really hard to make sure that there was indignation there, but it, that it was it was an American citizen indignation, not a Latina. Um, and I just, I just said, well, it's good. Let's take it down to the CBS Evening News and see what they say. And the editor there read it and he said it was great. <laughs> he said, change one word. Walter will love it. And, um, and it was so important for me because I fought for myself, I stood up for myself, um, and I won. And I trusted that I knew what I was talking about. And so often for Latinos and Latinas, no doubt, it should not be a surprise that we're always second-guessing ourselves in this country. I mean, that we think that we're not qualified to be here, that we suffer from the imposter syndrome. Of course, I mean, we're, we're being attacked and targeted by the, the President of the United States every day. So if I was feeling this back then, Latinos and Latinas right now are feeling this very real. And we just have to counteract that with like, nah, you got this. Nah, you're smarter. Nah, you know what you're talking about. Nah, you're good. You know what, you're, yeah, you're good. Um, we have to continue to convince ourselves that we do know what we're talking about and that we do have agency and authority and voice in this country. You know, you had to do a lot of this on pretty much alone, right? I mean, as as the only Latina or the only person of color in, in the newsroom, um, can you talk about what it's meant to you, or what it meant to you to first to connect yourself to a, a longer history of of people of color, uh, journalists and, and Latinas? I mean, you mentioned um, 
uh, is several. I mean, in the, uh, you know, uh, I don't know why my, my Ida B. Wells, okay, there we go. I, don't, I was going to say, I don't know why my mind is going blank That's right okay. now. That's um, okay. So Ida B. Wells, and you mentioned several others, you know, Frederick Douglass. And um, so first, that, that aspect of that realization of connecting yourself to that work, to that truth-telling by, by people of color, right, and particularly in this medium, in journalism, right, but then also... It, it, your work and what it meant to you to, to build that community then to build spaces for people of color and for Latinos, Latinas, uh, Latinx folk in, in journalism. Yeah, no, I, um, it's very clear to me how this happened. I was reading, um, a massive book. It's called news for all the people. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Um, by Juan Gonzalez and Joe Torres. And it's the history of, <clears throat> of journalists of color in the United States wow, that book changed my life. I was like, oh my God. So I am connected to Frederick Douglass. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I am connected to Jovita Idar, right. a Mexican-American, ran a newspaper um, in El Paso. The Texas Rangers tried to shut her down. You know, she resisted. She was an American Latina journalist um, in the early 1900s. I am connected to Ida B. Wells, who was born into slavery, um, and then ends up covering, becoming an investigative journalist, and dies because she's shamed by the mainstream media who says to her, oh, Ida B. Wells, why do you want to report about lynchings? Come on, that's not news. Lynchings happen every day. That's not news. You know, what's your agenda in wanting to report about this? Um, It's my connection to Ruben Salazar, um, or to Ed Bradley, may, may, they, may they all rest in peace. Um, and then I'm like, wow, so that's why I have to do this. I am actually part of this long arc of journalists of color and of conscience. And you do not have to be of color to be of conscience. Right. I am part of this long arc. And I have a responsibility. And, and what I'm doing has historical significance. Yeah, no, when I read that book, I was like, okay, now I understand. <laughs> now I understand why I cannot give up. And that's really, it was a transformational moment for me. I was like, okay, I get it. I understand. I understand why I got to keep doing this. As hard as it is, come on. I cannot have it harder than Frederick Douglass or uh, Ida B. Wells. I cannot have it harder than them. And they didn't stop. And so is that what helps also provide like the motivation to do something so bold as to start your own media company, you know, to start Futuro Media, to, um, you know, not just preserve and make the space for your voice, but but for others as well? Well, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm an immigrant. Um, I created Futuro because I really, I did not want to go on unemployment. (laughs) 60 Minutes didn't hire me. They told me to come back when one of the old white guys got sick or died. Your dream job, right? That would have been. That was my dream job. Yeah. It should have been. Um, and I was like, uh, I I don't have a job. I can't go on unemployment. I could never tell my father that I was going to go on unemployment. You know, I was already, you know, 40 years old at that time. Like, no, what? No. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to try and create this thing. Somebody told me that they would work with me and I'm going to get in touch and say, let's do this. And that's what happened. Um, I wasn't thinking about the fact that, you know, right now, as far as we know, I'm the only Latina uh, who is running a nonprofit newsroom in the United States. I mean, I didn't think about that. I just did it. Um, I understood that I had visibility um, and therefore I had credibility and, 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 and that people might believe in me trying to do this. Um, I also got a lot of, you know, roll, eye rolling because people are like, oh my God, why are you creating a nonprofit? Make money. And I was like, I'm, I don't believe you make money off of journalism. Um, you know, people didn't think we'd be along, around a long time. We're 10 years old and we are growing. <laughs> By leaps and bounds, the audience for Latino USA is growing, maybe at the fastest rate that it has. We just added, I don't know, in September, we just got it like, oh, no, you just added 25 stations. What? 
you know, so wow. we, we've been around for uh, 25 years and our audience is popping. Whoa. Um, it's because of the way in which we do this reporting and have done it for all of these years um, that that the audience continues to grow. And that's why I formed Futuro Media was because I thought, well, some people know me. Some people might understand what I'm trying to do. Maybe they'll help me. And now, you know, we are, you know, 10 years old. We're funded by the top... Uh, foundations in the country and we're well respected and I'm able to employ so many journalists uh, of color and, and white journalists. We, we are uh, a, a representational newsroom, always trying to do better. Um, but we employ a lot of journalists and that, <laughs> woo, that makes me so happy. <laughs> I'm very respectful of your time. I just have a couple more questions if you don't mind. Um, the first is help us to understand, and I say us, you know, the audience, those of us not in the newsroom, um, those that don't have, you know, the, the decades um, that you have of experience navigating that environment, seeing it, it transform, um, seeing new media, right? I mean, you, you were you, you were eating dinner, you were raised eating dinner at, you know, with the transformative media of television, of network television, and you've seen us go through so many other iterations, primarily, you know, into the internet and now with social media and uh, all that that's come with it. What is it that you would like um, your listeners to understand about journalists and journalism, you know, today, in today's environment? That we are a precarious profession right now in the United States of America that um, the land of the First Amendment is actually challenged uh, by what's happening with our journalism, that we are living through a period of massive misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda, that, um, that sadly, because much of our mainstream media is run and owned by white men of privilege, that they don't see the threat of what's happening in our country with this administration lying and destabilizing every institution, um, including journalism. Um, so this is a very precarious time. Uh, there are fewer journalists now, um, you know, than in modern, in recent modern history. Our profession is shrinking. We have somehow become the enemy. How did that happen? That that this that we have become the enemy. Enemy. On the other hand, um, you know, I am pushing my colleagues in the mainstream to do better all the time, and I'm part of the mainstream. I mean, I'm not an employee of MSNBC, but I'm I'm on the network somewhat regularly. You know, we contribute. We're we're distributed to public radio stations across the country. So. We are a part of the mainstream media, but we're also outside of it. Um, you know, In the Thick is our politics podcast, and we distribute that, and we do whatever the heck we want on that show. Um, so there is a lot of, there, there is a lot of um, equality in the sense I, I'm competing with the New York Times, with CBS News. Like, uh, so like there's a somewhat equal playing field in terms of the quality of the content. That didn't exist 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but this is a very precarious moment for journalists and journalism, a uh, very dangerous moment to be a journalist in this country. Uh, and I do not feel like we have American society writ large protecting us. And I do not feel that I can count on my colleagues in the mainstream to kind of come to my defense. They should have, all, all, what, what should they have done? What, what does a good ally look like? Um, they should have boycotted the presidential debates until they added Latinos and Latinas as moderators. That would have been the thing to do, but they didn't do that. Thank you. My, my next question is related to that too. It's um, in that it, it, it's simply put what, and you address this towards the end of their book, your book about you know, there's several things that, that we can do. When I, when I particularly think about the, the issue of immigration. And when I teach it to my students, I, 
I often get a lot of questions and I, and if they don't question, you know, give me the question right away, it's definitely eventually asked and I can see it in their eyes. It's this, this, this desperate look and, and question of saying, what can we do? Right. What can we do about it? Right. So, um, what is it that you wish, you know, and, and want, um, you know, just ordinary folks, you know, to know that what can we do about, you know, the horrors of our immigration system? What can we do about the, the terrible, uh, you know, development of, of our media landscape? And, and as he was mentioned, I mean, the fact that we are living in, in, in an era where truth is just, I mean, I'm just shocked to even say it, that there's, that there's, that fake news is tossed around so much and that, People are literally lost, whether they're they're young, they're old. Trying to find truth is is seemingly an incredibly difficult thing to do for a lot of people. Right. So Well if if any if they're listening to this podcast, then I would ask them to take a moment and acknowledge their privilege. <laughs> if they're listening to this podcast and they're saying what can I do? The first thing to realize, realize is like, well, you've got some privilege right now. That should be the first thing to make you say, okay, well, I've got to do something. Then I, I often, um, back when I was out and about, people would ask me, well, what should we do? And I would say, you know, I actually, I find it interesting that I would fly into name the city, Kansas City, Minneapolis, um, Detroit, um, Iowa City, any of these places, and people would say, well, what should we do? And I'm like, I can't tell you what to do in Omaha or in Austin or in Louisville. But I do know that if you, if you do a little bit of research and trust yourself, you will find the thing that calls you. You don't have to, what needs to happen is do something, right? Do not just throw up your arms and say, well, there's nothing. No, there are so many organizations nationally and locally that exist. So at a minimum, you can donate at a minimum. Um, and then there's just get in touch locally. What do they need? Uh, you don't have to like call up and say, well, I could do this, but you can call up and say, hey, I have a lot of skills. What do you need? How can I help you? Um, there are a lot of organizations that are doing frontline work, that are doing legal work, that are doing, um, I mean, the helping, uh, 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 helping people to get to their appointments with uh, immigration, transporting them, getting them there, um, visiting people in immigrant detention facilities. All of these organizations exist already. Organizations that want to dismantle the immigration industrial complex um, radical organizations, you know, of, of which we need radical action, frankly, because the horrors that are happening are what's radical here, not the response. Um, the response is commensurate with the horror uh, that this country is unleashing. I will just say this, unless everybody who is listening to this does something, this is not going to end. We're at a crisis point. Uh, and it cannot be left just up to the immigrants or to Latinos um, to to fix this. It, it's got to be everybody who's fixing this. Maria, thank you for you know your voice, and thank you for that call to action. It's it's what we all need to hear. And uh, you know, if there's one word I could use to describe this book and and my experience reading it, even as a male middle-class Mexican-American kid that, you know, grew up middle-class in the suburbs, you know, very different experiences, right, from you and your your family's history. And, um, you know, it, one word to, it's empowering. You know, this book is empowering. Your work is empowering. It's motivating. Um, and uh, I hope our audience feels that. And I appreciate that call to action. I appreciate the work that you do, the truth-telling you do, because that's what it, it does inspire in me. And inspires me to, to want to do something. So thank you for this. Thank you for your time. And, and thank you for writing this book. I can't thank you enough. And thank you for those words. I, I deliver this book with a lot of love. And I, I hope it gets into the hands of as many people as possible. Um, so that we can understand that, you know, we are in this together because they are me. And once I was them, <laughs> we're all in this together. Thank you so much. I love this interview. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.